I had never sang that song um, in view of the story of Abraham and Sarah in the Old Testament. And yet, um, I don't know what, what inspired the authors, if there's a specific story, but there's a lo lot that we're going to talk about this morning that overlaps to what we just sang about, um, which is probably why the worship team picked it. But um, <laughs> let's pray together. Father, I, Holy Spirit, we're just um, seeking your presence here with us. So tune in our hearts, our minds. Lord, to hear from you. Lord, we want to we experience what it means to live by faith. We know we don't do that perfectly. We know the examples that were given didn't do that perfectly. But we want to grow in it. Lord, we want to live it out. Would you meet us in this place this morning? Open up your word to us, and it's your name we pray. Amen. I, uh, I don't know if you've experienced this. I'm, I, I would venture to guess that you have at one level or another, but one of those moments in life where you step into something really like fully confident, maybe even perhaps overconfident, and then uh, almost a few moments later, as stuff starts to unfold and the situation starts to happen, you're like, your confidence starts to wane quite a bit. Have you ever done that? I, when my kids were little and we would go back to visit my mom and my brothers back in Ohio, oftentimes, um, you know, we would stay at my mom's house, and my mom would say to all the grandkids, all my, uh, my kids' cousins, like, hey, do you want to do a, a sleepover? And, um, and inevitably, they all would be like, yeah, yeah, we want to do a sleepover, which we never seemed to get a say in this. Like, it was just like, do you guys want a house, like 20 kids all in one house? And you know, it's like, anyways. Um, and one of my nephews would always be like fully confident that he wanted to do a sleepover. Yeah, yeah, I want to I wanna do a sleepover. And then we'd get about like 30 to 40 minutes into it, and you could see kind of his confidence starting to wane. And my brother and my sister-in-law live like half an hour away, and there was more than once where I was like, okay, let's get in the car, I'll drive you over to your parents' house. And so in this one particular instance, he's getting a little bit older, and Grandma said this, extended the same invitation. All the cousins are excited. And he says, uh, yeah, I want to I stay. So he wants to stay for the sleepover. So I make sure to kind of have like a one-on-one -on -one conversation at this time. Like, hey, are you sure you want to do this? Like, sometimes you get a little nervous. And he's like, no, I'm, I'm ready. I want to do it. I'm like, okay, let's do this. And I'll tell you, it's like as soon as like everybody's left, it's getting quiet. We're, we're unfolding the little like sleeper sofa couch, getting people ready for bed. I could see him like starting to get like visibly nervous. And I look at him, I'm like, are you doing okay, buddy? And he goes, he said to me, my brain just told me I did something stupid. <laughs> and I said, my brain just told me I'm not driving you over to your parents' house. So put your pajamas on. Um, I think most of us, at one degree or another, we, we have experienced some situation, some environment where we step into something fully confident, feeling very good about whoever we've placed our faith in, whatever events are going to happen, only to find ourselves moments later really struggling with, with what we're facing or what's in front of us. In fact, many of us, I think if we're honest with ourselves, would say that that's a fairly accurate summation of our experience of faith, right? Moments when we are supremely confident in what God has said and what he's promised and what he's told us or what he's asking of us. 
only to later have questions if, if we've really understood him correctly or if he's going to be there for us or if he's going to come through. Moments where we doubt and we question. And, and Can anybody relate to this? I think this is one of the reasons why this study of, of the men and women who are described as living by faith in Hebrews chapter 11, this is, this is one of the reasons that this is simultaneously instructive to us and I think challenging for us, but also relatable. I think it's one of the reasons that when we explore some of these stories and hear their experiences, that it sounds or feels familiar to us. Now, on the one hand, we see people, uh, like we looked at last week with, with Noah, where God comes to Noah and he asks of Noah something extraordinary, where I want you to build in the middle of a desert this gigantic boat. Over the course of 100 to 120 years, and Noah, it says, if you remember in the end of Genesis chapter 6, it says he did everything that God commanded him. Now, we don't have the details of those 100 years. We don't know if there was days when Noah woke up and said, God, I just want to make sure that we're still on the same page. We're still, the plan is still to build a boat in the middle of the desert, right? I, I kind of think that maybe there was. If, if you look at the story sort of, just with what we have in Genesis, it feels like Noah's faith was, if we were to chart it out, it was, it was up into the right. It was just growing like faithful obedience to God. Of course, this boat would end up being Noah's rescue for him and his family. It was, it was God providing for their salvation. But today we're going to look at the example of, of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah, who in so many ways they just lived out, modeled incredible faith. So much so that Abraham is oftentimes referred to as the father of the faith. We have children's songs that we sing about Abraham in Sunday schools, particularly if you grew up when I grew up in the church, right? You sang about Father Abraham had many sons. Okay, that's good. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. And so are you. So let's just pray. Right arm, Father. You know, like, it, we discovered today that this was just a way of killing time in children's ministry. And so Sherry's like, pray, yep. Uh, I, it's embarrassing how long I grew up in the church singing this thong, song thinking it was about Abraham Lincoln. I was like, <laughs> I'm, all right, I don't know. I don't know what he has to do with any of this, but I'm going to. I don't even know when it was that I made the connection here. <laughs> We're going to discover that, that Abraham and Sarah's, their faith experience while modeled to us as this picture of what it looks like to live by faith, was also one where there was moments of struggle and, and fear, moments where they doubted what God had promised. And so at the one hand, they, they looked forward holding on to the promise that informed their faith, but then at the same time wondered, is God going to come through here? And I think it, it teaches us something about our own experience of, of living by faith. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Um, 
while Cain and Abel's story and the story of Noah that we looked at last week, those, those are treated with one verse in Hebrews. Noah, or, uh, Abraham and Sarah and then Abraham and Isaac make up a, a good section of this chapter. And it begins in verse 8. This is what the author writes. He says, By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out, even though, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents as Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, where, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age, since she considered that the one who had promised was faithful. Therefore, from one man, in fact, from one as good as dead, which there's a lot of way to call people old, <laughs> that, feels, that feels harsh. In fact, from one as good as dead came offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and as numerable as the grains of the sand along the seashore. This incredible depiction of faith and the promise that God had delivered. But what's interesting, if you know the story of Abraham and Sarah, and we'll, we'll look at this in detail in a bit, but is that when God comes to them, and he restates or he reiterates the promise that he has offered to them, both Abraham and Sarah, when they hear God say that, I'm, I'm going to give you a son, and, and from your son, there's going to be this generations of family, and from these generations of family, I'm going to build an entire nation, and this nation is going to be a blessing to the world, that when they hear this promise stated, they both laugh. Right? And not the kind of laugh that's like, I'm so joyous right now. Right? The kind of laugh that's like, this is ridiculous. Like, how could this happen? But before we get there, I want to begin today by looking at the nature of the call and the promise of faith. We have to start here, and in order to do that, we need to flip back into Genesis chapter 12. I want us to hear what God says to Abraham and Sarah, beginning in verse 1. At this time in the story, before God has given them a new identity, they're referred to Abram. Their names are Abram and Sarai. So just so you know, we're talking about the same people here. The Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, along, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. Are you the, are you the kind of person that likes surprises? No? no? Yeah. I've sort of discovered that I'm really not either. Like, I, I, I learned this early on in marriage. Um, my, Sherry, I would say, you, you like little surprises, like flowers that are on the kitchen counter when she got home from work, or little uh, gestures like that. If, I, if she were to come home for 
like on a Friday and I had a bag packed and I was like, we're leaving on vacation and I'm gonna surprise you. That, I don't think that, would, that wouldn't go as well, right? One, because if I packed the bag, there'd probably be half the stuff she would need wouldn't be there and there might be a couple things that she doesn't need that are there and, and all these things that like, wh who's gonna take care of the kids? Who's gonna take care of these details? All this sort of stuff and, and yet there's just like fear in that, right? So imagine if you can, like God showing up into your life, your set of circumstances, and says, I'm gonna lead you into the unknown. I'm gonna take you someplace away from everything that's familiar, everything that provides security, and like this would be terrifying for us. It's easy to kind of romanticize this sort of thing, but, but oftentimes, when we think about what God is asking of them, particularly in a culture when your security and your sense of identity are deeply rooted in your connection to family, into the land that you have, God says, I'm gonna take you away from your father, and I'm gonna take you into a land that you don't know and that you've never been to, and I'm gonna set you up there. In fact, this, if, you, if, you, if we chart through Hebrews, this is a consistent theme that the author of Hebrews is making in each of these examples of faith. It's the idea of, of what you leave behind for the promises of something that you don't fully see yet, that's not fully available to you. In fact, the author of Hebrews suggests that this is what faith means. This is what faith requires of us. I was recently at a conference uh, this spring out in Boise, Idaho, and Jackie Hill Perry is an author and a theologian and a um, preacher, and um, she, she spoke at this event and just did a fantastic job, but she was referencing Hebrews 11. And she made this point, and I, I hadn't fully considered it before, but she was talking about these examples, these heroes of the faith, and what it meant for them to live by faith and how they follow God. And she went through and she pointed out how for each of them, it cost them something. There, there was something that they were leaving behind. Obedience to the call of God for each one of these men and women required sacrifice. And Abraham and Sarah, they're no exception. In fact, this is, this is what the author is pointing out here that's so primary in each of this. He says, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and, and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out even though he did not know where he was going, and by faith he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise. Notice what he says here, living in tents as Isaac and Jacob did, living in this, this um, non-permanent way of existence, but looking forward, right, to the city that has foundations. Scholars and theologians debate, like, is he, is he talking about Jerusalem here, or is he talking about a new heaven and a new earth that God's going to ultimately accomplish. Looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. This is what Abram, Abraham is extolled for. Despite all that they are asked to leave behind, Abraham and Sarah, they respond in faith because of the promise. In Genesis 12, he says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. 
God chooses Abraham and his family to, meet, to be the means by which he is going to bless the entire world. God is going to establish a, a family by which they will relate to God and covenant relationship with him. Again, as we've been talking about the advancement of the covenant that's traced throughout Hebrews 11, throughout these stories. God is, is working to restore what was lost in Genesis chapter 3 when sin enters the picture. He's enacting his plan to return us to this Genesis 1 and 2 experience where we dwell in intimate relationship with God. He says, I'm going to build this, this covenant family. And then out of this covenant family, God is going to establish a covenant nation. And this covenant nation, as, as we see in the Old Testament, the people of Israel, they're going to live in, in this area, this part of the world, is this tangible expression, a living invitation of, of, uh, to the people around them into the blessing of God. And if you've read the Old Testament, you know that they don't do this perfectly, but, but God is faithful to his promise along the way. And from this nation, God would take on flesh in the person of Jesus, and he would come and he would be a covenant savior. And he's going to build this multicultural, multi-ethnic family where people come together from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and he's going to put them together as this group living out this covenant as a testimony to the world around them of the love and blessing of God. It's called the body of Christ, the church. And it all begins with a call and, and a promise. Father Abraham had many sons. I am one of them, and so are you. And notice in Genesis 12, at the beginning there, verse 4. So Abram went. Abram went as the Lord had told him. Abraham and Sarah believed the promise. D despite everything that was going to be required of them to be left behind, they responded to the call. So let me ask you the question. What, what does the promise of God ask us to leave behind? What, what does the invitation to live by faith ask us to leave behind? Because if the examples are any indicator for us, I think Hebrews 11 forces us to wrestle with that question authentically. Do I believe the promise enough to respond to the call? This leads us into the, the ups and downs of faith. The ups and downs of faith. Many of us uh, can relate to environments or circumstances where we're wrestling to let go of control and that desire to take control back. I, uh, um, over the last few years, had the opportunity to teach my two oldest daughters how to drive. And that is a, a practical experience of letting go of control, both, both mentally and physically and somewhat spiritually, right? Like you're, and like you're really you're wrestling in, that, in the car as you're teaching them to drive, as they're learning for the very first time and they're making corrections and all that. And then like your, your arm is just constantly wanting to grab the wheel to make the correction for them. And yet this is something that they have to learn, that to do it. So sometimes you do it for your own safety and the safety of others, right? But, but most of the time, you're, you're trying to let them experience what it looks like to overcorrect or oversteer so that they learn to do it. 
See, I think when we follow Abraham and Sarah's story, when we experience their faith and, and the call and the promise of Yahweh and what he's invited them into, you see this control battle that unfolds here. I have, I wanted just to show you an image. This is a map of Abraham. So he, his family was in Ur of the Chaldeans over there on the um, far side of the map. And they're heading over to, by the Mediterranean Sea into Canaan. And you can see that, that the route that they go is a bit out of the way, right? It's not the most direct route. Now, now, this is, I'm using this sort of metaphorically because they're following trade routes and they settle up in Haran with his dad and it's out of Haran that they make their way back down. But it's this, this very indirect path that eventually leads them into Egypt and we'll get there in a minute. But this is often, if we were to chart our faith journeys together, right? If we were to map it out, how many of us would map it as this straight line from point A to point B? I would venture to guess that most of us, it, it would look something more akin to this, right? It's, 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 it's a bit reflective of the overall journey. And so this, this, is a, this is just kind of a survey of what happens for Abraham and Sarah, but we'll see it's not a straight line because fear and doubt and multiple attempts to maintain control enter into the narrative. In fact, where we just were in in Genesis chapter 12, you'll see that there's a famine in the land after they settle there. And so in order to escape it, Abraham and his family make their way over to Egypt. But Abram gets nervous and um, he knows that, that Pharaoh or some of Pharaoh's men will see Sarah and they will want to add Sarah into Pharaoh's household. And so they come up with a plan. He's afraid that if, if he knows that you're my wife. He's going to kill me and take you. And so let's just tell Pharaoh that you're my sister. And that's what they do. Let's, let's control the situation a little bit. And sure enough, Pharaoh takes Sarai at the time into his home. And, and God, because he has uh, made a promise here, begins to plague Pharaoh's home with a series of, of plagues that's unfolded. And eventually Pharaoh realizes that it all started when Sarah entered the house and, and he comes back to Abraham and I've, I've got a bunch of passages up here that we're not, we're not gonna be able to get to all these, but he comes back to Abraham and he says, why did you lie to me? And, and returns Sarah to Abraham's house and says, get, get out of here, I don't need this. And then in Genesis chapter 15, there's this amazing passage where we see God come back to Abraham and Sarah. They've, they've tried to maintain control, but here in Genesis 15, again, we're talking about the advancement of the covenant of God. He reestablishes the promise with them. And if you look at 15 verse 5, he says it again. He says, he took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars if you're able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. He said, here is the promise. This is what I'm going to do for you. And then he does this incredible thing, this, this ancient Near East custom and the manner in which a covenant was made and there's sacrifices that are made and the parts of the animal are laid out in a path. And the two people making the covenant would, would walk through this path together. And it would basically say, look, if I break the covenant, if, if, if I do not hold up to what I am promising here, may it be to me as it was to these animals. This is the severity of which this I am making here, the covenant that I am speaking. 
But what's extraordinary about it in Genesis chapter 15 is that Abraham sits down. He doesn't walk through the path. Only God does. God says, I I am taking on the ownership of this entirely. This is a covenant that I am making to you. And then look at at 15 um, verse 18. He says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, I give this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River. Saying, I this, I'm reestablishing this covenant. You would think again from a moment such as this, that Abraham and Sarah would be so rooted in, in what God had promised and his ability to fulfill that, but they're not seeing it happen. There is no son There is no generation to come from. You might be familiar with what happens next. Sarah and Abraham devise a plan in Genesis chapter 16. They say, maybe we need to take matters into our own hands here. This is Genesis chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. It says, Abram's wife, Sarai, had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave, perhaps through her I can build my family. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said, which, that's problematic right there, right? Abram is not putting up a fight. So Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan for 10 years, and he slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. And when she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. We, there's so much more here that we could unpack, but this is a perfect example of Abraham and Sarah trying to take the promise of God and bring it into their control. And so we're going to take steps here in order to make sure that what God has promised unfolds as he said it was going to unfold, even if it requires us to violate the very instructions, the very thing that God has given us. As a general principle, right, our efforts to control God's timeline, our our efforts to control God's answering to the promise, it, it always comes with repercussions. And this, this example is, is no less. So all this culminates, all this continues to build. In Genesis chapter 17, you once again see God coming and he's speaking with Abraham and he's restating the promise. You will have a son and from your son there will be generations that come more numerous than you can count. And Abraham hears God's word and he laughs. He says, how can that be? In Genesis chapter 18, there's a similar event. And Sarah is in the tent, and Abraham is out meeting with God. And as God speaks, Sarah overhears the promise restated. And once again, Sarah responds, and she laughs. In fact, the name that is given to their son Isaac, the son that they will, the answer to the promise, his name literally means son of laughter. The faith of Abraham and Sarah isn't a faith that goes unaffected by either uh, of their own ability to 
to control and to see, to wonder, to doubt how God is ultimately going to fulfill his promise. Faith for Abraham and Sarah is, is messy. It's a messy process. It's, it's marked by their own attempts to take control. But it, in view of, of all of these ups and downs, listen once again to what Hebrews describes. Back in verse 11, he says, By faith, even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age since she considered that the one who had promised was faithful. Therefore, from one man, in fact, one as good as dead, came offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and as innumerable as the grains of the sand along the seashore. Abraham and Sarah, despite the doubt, despite the questions, despite their own inability to see how is God going to answer this? How is this promise going to be realized? Despite their own efforts to control the result, ultimately Abraham and Sarah had faith that God would do the very thing that he said he would do. Which brings us then to the gift of faith. The third thing we see here is, is the gift of faith. And to be honest with you, I've, I've wrestled this week with how, how to explain this description of Abraham and Sarah's faith in view of all of these attempts to take it into their own understanding and control and, and the ups and downs and the laughter. And there's one more story that I want to point us to. Because between this moment in Genesis chapter 18 and ultimately the realization of the promise in Genesis chapter 21, there's one more story that unfolds. It's actually very similar to a story that we've already heard. It's when, once again, when um, Abraham and Sarah are, are forced to move into another territory. And it's, it's overseen by a leader by the name of Abimelech. And Abimelech, again, sees Sarah and decides that he wants to take her into his own household. And so, again, Abraham and Sarah employ the, this is my sister routine. And, and again, Abimelech, I, I, we don't have time to go look at all this, but Abimelech immediately gets a, a dream, a vision from God, where God is like, don't touch Sarah. And, and Abimelech is like, he told me he was her sister. You know, like, he, he's like, this is, Abraham lied to me. I, I, and, and God says, return Sarah to Abraham. And so Abimelech does, but it, while all this is unfolding, God in Abimelech's house, much like he did Pharaoh's, he says that in, well, actually, we can turn there real quick. Flip over to chapter 20, verse 17. Sarah and Abraham see something, I think, significant. Abimelech returns Sarah to Abraham's house, and then Abraham prays essentially like a release of the consequences that Abimelech has experienced since Sarah has been there. And it says, then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and the female slaves so that they could bear children. For the Lord had completely closed all the wombs in Abimelech's household on account of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Verse 
1 of chapter 21 then. The Lord came to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the appointed time, God had told him, Abraham named his son who was born to him, the one Sarah born to him, Isaac. Abraham and, and Sarah experienced this moment, this situation where God, by the power of his will, completely closes the wombs of an entire household, an entire group of people. And then in, when Abraham prays over this house, these wombs are, are once again opened up. And Sarah and Abraham experience that maybe, maybe this ability to have this son, maybe that, that this opportunity, this promise that God, maybe it's not dependent on us. Maybe this is going to be something that God is going to enact out of his own power and out of his own will. And their faith is confirmed. And so how are we to understand this ancient story? What are we to do with this ancient example of faith? See, the source of Abraham and Sarah's faith is ultimately rooted in two things. It's rooted in the promise of God, as we saw, and it's rooted in the power of God. So the question that I think I want to invite us to ask today as we think about our own messy processes of faith, as we think about the areas where we are tempted to take back control and to, to make it, to force it, to control the narrative ourselves, right? The questions that I want us to ask is, what has God promised? What has God promised to us? Because I think we get this wrong sometimes. And sometimes we place on promises to God that he did not make. And when they don't fold out the way we want it to, we get frustrated. So we have to be clear about the promises. And then secondly, do I believe he has the power to fulfill the promise? The second question that we have to ask is, do I believe he has the power to fulfill the promise? When the, when the promise feels far off, right, when it feels outside of our ability to control, do I believe he has the power? Leslie Newbegin once wrote, he's a, a theologian and a missionary in India, he once said, he said, we don't have to know what will happen to us immediately if we know what will happen to us ultimately. I think this is what the story, the faith of Sarah and Abraham teach us. I think this is the author, this is the author of Hebrews' objective to his original audience. The resurrection of Jesus for us on this side of the cross, what we just celebrated at the communion table today, it's, it's the intersection of the power and the promise of God. It's the resurrection of Jesus that reminds us what is going to happen ultimately and then informs how we can live immediately. It's because we too are called to live by faith. We too are called to God's um, God's call and promise in our life. We're called to live in faithful obedience to his kingdom. His kingdom come, his will be done. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for the example of, of Sarah and Abraham. Lord, we thank you for a faith and process that was learning to trust you and we recognize that just like it is for many of us, it, it, 
it was met with efforts and attempts to control it and to manage it. And yet, Lord, I just um, want to acknowledge and recognize that you are faithful in all of it. And so as we think about and we reflect on the promise of your gospel and the invitation that you've extended to us, cause us to recognize again that you are the one who is faithful, that we can place our trust in you. Amen.